Hello, Peter Pearls listeners, and welcome to December 11th, Monday re-release. Today we are re-releasing the entirety of the points of discussion, should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome. This topic originally aired in February of 2022 on our podcast channel, and rather than being presented in three separate episodes this time, you may listen to all three in this one episode. Enjoy! Hello and welcome back to another PEDRA Points of Discussion podcast installment. Our debate topic this month is should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? This program is brought to you by the PEDRA Down Syndrome Focus Study Group. Before we begin, it's important to note the views and information expressed during this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the Pediatric Dermatology Research Alliance. The purpose of this podcast is to be thought-provoking and to stimulate new ideas, new collaborations, and novel research. Any reference to medical treatment or disease management is for this purpose only. It is not an endorsement by PEDRA, and it is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Any decisions related to medical care should be made in consultation with a qualified healthcare provider. Your moderator for the next three episodes is Dr. Jillian Rourke. Dr. Rourke is a pediatric dermatologist at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center and clinical assistant professor of dermatology and pediatrics at Geisel School of Medicine. She is the founder and co-chair of Pedra's Down Syndrome Focus Study Group, and she has a monthly Down Syndrome Dermatology Clinic at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, where she sees both children and adults with Down Syndrome. She has given many national lectures and podcasts to improve education and awareness of skin care in people with Down Syndrome. Thank you so much, Dr. Rourke. I'll hand it over to you. Great. Thank you so much, Shen. And I just wanted to thank you again and thank um, Pedra for inviting us to talk about this really important topic. Should immune modulators be prescribed for skin disease in children with Down syndrome? So I have to say, just to start out, that this is probably the number one question that we're asked by colleagues, whether it's an email or a phone call. And Dr. Holland, you probably remember that when we gave our talk at the AAD earlier this summer, that this was probably the first question that we heard on the mics. Um, I have to say too, this is a common question asked by parents because this is a really big decision. And it's made even more complicated by the fact that there's a lack of data about safety and efficacy of these medications in the Down syndrome population. And I think parents kind of pick up on this palpable apprehension. And I think they've also brought to my attention that they feel like sometimes these medications might not be fully discussed or or are um, being avoided. So the point of this podcast today is for us to feel um, empowered to have a conversation um, with our patients with Down syndrome about these medications and to really promote shared medical decision-making when it comes to making a choice about systemic medications and their many complex skin diseases. So we're going to um, break up this podcast into three sessions. In session one, we're going to try to answer the question, what are the skin conditions seen in children with Down syndrome that might require immune modulators? We'll then move on to session two, What are the pros and cons of using immune modulators to treat skin disease in children with Down syndrome? And then session three, we'll kind of bring it all back together in a roundtable discussion 
on how to approach discussion of immune modulator treatments with patients and families. So I wanted to introduce our three panelists today. We're so fortunate to have them here with us. Um, I wanted to start first with Dr. Krishore Velodi, who's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine. And he's also medical director of the Down Syndrome Center of Western Pennsylvania. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Velodi, for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm so glad to be here. Next, I'd like to introduce Dr. Emily Gurney, who is an assistant professor of dermatology at the University of Colorado. Thank you so much, Dr. Gurney. Thank you for having me. And uh, Dr. Christy Holland, who's associate professor of pediatric dermatology at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Hi, Jillian. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. So let's dive right in. Um, Dr. Velodi, not to put you in the hot seat with the first question, um, but we would love to hear about an overview of Down syndrome in the United States to kind of set the stage. How common is Down syndrome um, in the United States? Can you tell us a bit about any issues with healthcare access and delivery? Yeah, sure. Um, so, so Down syndrome is quite common. In fact, it's the most common genetic condition resulting in intellectual disability really in the world. Here in the U.S. in 2011, which was the last time I think that anyone looked into the incidents in the U.S., about one in 787 live-born babies had Down syndrome. So that works out to about 5,000 babies with Down syndrome who are born annually in the United States. Um, when we look at this, the total population, not just babies, but just total population of people with Down syndrome uh, living in the U.S., that's about 206,000 or so uh, people with Down syndrome in the U.S. And thinking about that number, that's about four times as many as were in the U.S. in 1950. So there really has been quite an increase in the number of people with Down syndrome who live in the U.S., Despite that, when we think about Down syndrome specific care, like a clinic that I run uh, here at uh, Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, they're pretty rare. There's around 70 clinics for people with Down syndrome that when studies have looked into this, serve only about 5%, maybe even less than that, of people with Down syndrome. So it's really hard for someone to get Down syndrome specific health care um, without being close, let's say, to a pretty uh, major city. And then when we think about like primary care providers who are trying to follow the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines, studies have looked at it and it's about 22 to 36% adherence to the guidelines uh, from general pediatricians. So it's really, really hard for a general pediatrician to really stay up to date with all of the things that are required or, or, or recommended for people with Down syndrome in their care. And then when we think about just regionally within the country itself, let's say in the South, for example, uh, in the Southern US, there's about 33% of patients who have Down syndrome that have to travel more than two hours to even get to their nearest Down syndrome clinic. So yeah, access is, an, is a challenge and providing adequate healthcare is a challenge. And as you all know, as pediatric dermatologists, you guys are hard to find too. And so next thing you know, it's like getting adequate general pediatric care, let alone dermatologic care is really, really hard for our families. 
No, I think you really highlight that regardless of our practice settings, we need to know about Down syndrome. And, uh, and obviously a lot of us are gonna be dermatologists listening to this who may or may not be in an academic setting. Um, so I think it, along those lines, um, I, I, I wanted to open it up to our expert pediatric dermatologists just to start talking about what are some of the skin conditions in children with Down syndrome where immune modulators, specifically biologic and JAK inhibitors um, could be considered. Dr. Gurney, I don't know if you wanna start out with that, talking about some of those conditions. Sure, so I think one thing, um, most of us who care for, for all children, particularly children in, um, with Down syndrome are very familiar with is an increased uh, amount of disorders of the follicular unit. So I think many of us have seen kind of an early onset folliculitis that's associated with some residual atrophy, um, now thought to be more of an inflammatory type of folliculitis that we see often quite early in our, in our patients with Down syndrome. Um, some studies estimate about 20% of, of persons with Down syndrome may have um, disorders of the follicular unit. That probably is on some level and within the same spectrum with hydradenitis, another condition I think many of us have seen quite frequently in people with Down syndrome. Um, we think that that happens at a younger age in Down syndrome, uh, as well as um, being at higher risk in general. So it's unclear at this point whether that's due to increased surveillance um, or an actual increased risk. Uh, certainly some of the immune changes we'll talk about later in Down syndrome would suggest that there probably is an increased risk, but there also are new guidelines that suggest screening persons with Down syndrome every year for hydradenitis. So it's possible we're screening and catching more cases earlier than we may in other populations. Another condition we see quite often in persons with Down syndrome is alopecia areata. It's unclear exactly what increase that rate is, but I think it's quite clear from some of the different immune mechanisms we'll again talk about later on in the podcast that there are reasons why that may be more prevalent in Down syndrome. Oh, that's great, Dr. Gurney. I think just to flush out that point that you're talking about, about the, the new American and Canadian Hydratinitis Foundation recommendations for annual screening, um, that they didn't give an age with that. But in, in talking with people who helped write those guidelines and just knowing how young it can appear on many of our children with Down syndrome who we take care of, um, we're recommending around seven, eight years old to, to try to start screening for that. So I think that's a great overview of their adnexal conditions. Um, Dr. Holland, do you wanna elaborate on that? Uh, perhaps talking about psoriasis and other um, autoimmune conditions. Sure. Um, you know, I would say, uh, I think, you know, hydradenitis is definitely something that um, when I think back on the, my patient population, um, that's one of the more common things, but psoriasis has been um, more, much more challenging. I have found that the Down syndrome patients that I care for have often failed several therapies as I try to find something to help control their disease. And that always, to me, suggests there may be some inherent um, mechanism, you know, in their biology that's sort of driving this. And I think as we talk, um, as Emily suggested about some of the immune mechanisms, we may understand that better. There's not a lot of good data about the incidence of psoriasis in the Down syndrome population. So I think it's an, an area of potential future study to see if there really is a true increased risk. But 
There have been some numbers that have uh, estimated that risk to be at about 8%. And that's in contrast to the general population where the standard incidence rate is usually quoted at around 2%. Um, so there is some suggestion that patients with psoriasis or patients with Down syndrome may be at higher risk for psoriasis. Uh, in terms of other autoimmune diseases, um, you know, we certainly see uh, vitiligo occurring in patients with Down syndrome. Uh, I happen to have a patient with, uh, with morphia, uh, which is also an autoimmune skin condition, but isn't something we generally think of necessarily with Down syndrome, but he, it makes me think a lot about um, you know, their, auto, their tendency for autoimmunity. No, I think that's great, Dr. Holland. Um, do you wanna start chatting about some of these mechanisms? And I know a lot of this needs to be fleshed out, but um, you know, talking a bit uh, maybe about um, the air gene on chromosome 21 and, and expanding on that. Um, there, there's actually been some work done looking at uh, thymic tissue in patients with Down syndrome. And in those studies, they, they were able to demonstrate reduced expression of the air uh, protein and this is a protein that is uh, important in establishing immune tolerance through development of T regulatory cells and, and also in the negative selection against autoreactive T cells. The unusual thing is that these patients, as you mentioned, this gene is on the chromosome 21. And so they have three copies, yet they have a reduced expression of the air gene, which is um, certainly counterintuitive. Um, and there's some hypotheses as to sort of why that might be. Interestingly, though, that the air gene has also been described as being uh, uh, the underlying cause of the autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome type one. And that shares a lot of features with Down syndrome with the uh, multiple types of autoimmune diseases. No, I think that's great. I think that's bringing us all back to our boards a bit, but um, really shows like how important it is to know those mechanisms. Um, um, can you touch upon um, Dr. Holland, uh, just briefly amyloid production and how that might play a role uh, kind of specifically with hydradenitis folliculitis and how it's linked with gamma secretase, which is probably another board question we're going for here, <laughs> but I think it's really interesting to talk about. You know, it's a, it's a really interesting uh, story, and I think we'll probably learn more as we continue to learn more about uh, the genetics behind uh, hydradenitis um, specifically. Um, the, the amyloid precursor protein is, is also located on chromosome 21, um, and there's been, that has been looked at in detail as potentially explaining some of the dementia that the patients with Down syndrome are at risk for developing. But in uh, its role in hydradenitis um, is may, may be more related to it, its ability to stimulate keratinocyte adhesion, migration, and proliferation. Um, it also may play a role in disrupting uh, gamma secretase activity in these patients. Um, we know that there's a subset of patients with hydradenitis that have gamma secretase mutations. Uh, and in those patients, uh, we know that they can develop, or in mouse models, really, um, they, they've shown that um, mice deficient in gamma secretase can de develop epidermal cysts, 
they can have abnormal sebaceous gland differentiation. And there's some thought that maybe this leads to um, downstream notch signaling, but that's, that's fairly controversial. Um, the um, gamma secretase, it also plays a role in processing of the amyloid precursor protein. In patients with Down syndrome, it's thought that one of the ways that they may have a relative deficiency in gamma secretase is not so much in a dysfunctional protein, but more in one that's perhaps busy dealing with all of the amyloid precursor protein as one of the roles of gamma secretase is in cleaving the APP. And if they, as they have in excess amounts of this, uh, the gamma secretase may be um, processing that and, um, and giving them sort of a relative deficiency and giving them the, the picture of uh, somebody who would have dysfunctional or deficient gamma secretase. It's very interesting stuff. More to come. Dr. Holland, you did a really good job breaking that down without a huge PowerPoint presentation behind you. So I think that was excellent. Um, Dr. Gurney, not to, to, to um, diminish your next task, which I think may even be larger, talking about interferon and dysregulation in people with Down syndrome. Can you touch upon a couple of those points? Because I think that's really, really insightful to some of their skin conditions. Well, absolutely, Dr. Rourke. It is a complicated topic, but in simple terms, um, persons with Down syndrome have, for the most part, an extra chromosome 21. Chromosome 21 encodes four of our six interferon receptors, so they have increased signaling through the interferon pathways, and that leads to a variety of downstream effects, um, specifically increasing signaling through the JAK-STAT pathway, which if anyone in dermatology right now knows that that is the hot topic that we all um, hear about nonstop right now. Every day there's a new story about a new JAK inhibitor or a new use for, for JAK inhibitors. So certainly there's a lot of attention being paid on this um, pathway and uh, persons with Down syndrome certainly um, are kind of a unique uh, inflammatory state in that way. Um, there's multiple sort of downstream effects on our immune system um, thought to happen by that increased interferon signaling, likely leading to some of the autoimmune effects that we've talked about already here, um, in addition to many other autoimmune conditions uh, in persons with Down syndrome. The exact me mechanism for that happening is not clear, so I won't go through and speculate. I'm certainly not the right person to do that, but um, you know, a major question is how much targeting that pathway may help uh, persons with Down syndrome. I think that's a really nice transition, Dr. Gurney, to us starting to talk about some of the potential immune modulators that we might use for some of these skin conditions for hydradenitis, for psoriasis, et cetera. Um, can, you, can you touch on um, a few of those for us? And and I know that this will be said throughout our um, time together today, but you know we're limited with um, efficacy, safety data. There's no systematic reviews on any of these medications. We're really just left with case reports in the Down syndrome population. Um, but could you start out by um, discussing perhaps TNF-alpha inhibitors and then maybe touching on JAK inhibitors? Absolutely. So certainly using TNF-alpha inhibitors is very familiar to anyone practicing dermatology, but we may or may not be as comfortable using those medications in individuals with Down syndrome. 
So um, adalimumab is certainly one of the most widely used medications uh, for inflammatory skin conditions in dermatology. It's approved 12 plus for HS, 18 plus for psoriasis, but certainly many of us use that medication off-label. Um, in clinical trials, 40 to 60% of patients with hydradenitis had a clinical response versus 27% of controls. So modest efficacy. And I think many of us who use that medication in practice for hydradenitis have had many patients not respond. Some do, but certainly it's not, um, it's not universally effective in, in patients with or without Down syndrome. Infliximab is another commonly used uh, intravenous TNF-alpha inhibitor used off-label for hydradenitis in many of our more severe patients. Um, used for psoriasis on label by the FDA, um, but really the optimal dosing of infliximab is clear, pretty clear for psoriasis and much less clear for hydronitis. Um, in terms of the JAK inhibitors, certainly a whole new class of medications that many of us are developing comfort with, but you know, may still have a lot of ongoing questions about exactly what they should be used for and how they should be used. Uh, they've been used quite extensively for inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and psoriatic arthritis, but our understanding in inflammatory skin conditions is really just beginning, I think. Um, particularly in conditions like HS, we really only have case reports to go on, um, and I think psoriasis, the data is not quite where we would want it to be yet, um, but still developing. There's, of course, a wonderful Pedra Pearls uh, podcast about JAK inhibitors specifically for, for atopic dermatitis. So I think we won't touch too much on that in our discussion. Um, and I think the other thing with JAK inhibitors is that it's pretty clear that in the next several years, we're probably going to have a lot more options to use that may be more targeted than what we have today. Oh, that, that's great. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Gurney. Um, Dr. Holland, can you touch on um, IL-12 and 23 and, and then IL-17 um, treatments? You know, it's this has been uh, an exciting uh, time, I think, to be a dermatologist with all of the evolving therapies that we have at our fingertips. Uh, many of these, uh, there's more groundwork uh, with our understanding of their use in psoriasis, but um, we're certainly starting to learn how they may be helpful for other conditions uh, like hydradenitis. And, uh, and so, and we know that more and more things are coming on the horizon. Um, the, you know, TNF-alpha, you know, that's kind of was the beginning of the, the journey for psoriasis treatments. Uh, and so I, I think a lot of us as pediatric dermatologists, probably have most experience with that because um, we tend to think about what do we have the greatest amount of safety data for. Um, so I think, you know, in order to, when we're having that discussion with families about, you know, which medication to consider, you know, this often comes up as to sort of, has it been looked at in kids? And, um, you know, the, the Down syndrome population is challenging because as you've said, you know, we have really limited data um, as it pertains specifically to them. Uh, the, uh, after the TNF-alpha inhibitors, um, we saw the development of, uh, it started to become realized that, you know, in psoriasis, the pathogenesis um, may not, TNF-alpha might not be the main molecule or the most important one. And um, and that's where we got some of these uh, newer um, targeted therapies 
with IL-1223, which um, is ustekinumab. Ustekinumab is approved down to the age of six, um, and the, it's given every three months, um, which can be uh, a preferred option for a child who may be needle phobic. Uh, the IL-17 agents, um, sacukinumab and ixikizumab, are both approved for six years of age and older as well. So um, that's, uh, you know, for years we practiced without anything specifically approved for kids. So um, it's great that we have all of those approved uh, age of six and older. The secukinumab and ixikizumab, they both are administered every month. Um, so that's always part of the discussion uh, when we're making choices on treatments. And then there are uh, other uh, targeted therapies that are in uh, trials right now in the pediatric population, but aren't currently approved. And those are the IL-23 inhibitors, guselcumab, rizinkizumab, and teldrakizumab. Oh, that's great. I think I'm thinking back to our recent uh, talk given by Dr. Rich Antea at our pre-AAD meeting where he entitled it the big bang when it come to all, they came to all these medications that we have at our fingertips now. Um, I think that's a really um, kind of nice point to end on um, for session one of our um, podcast series. Um, and I think what we're going to do in the second half is really talk about side effects of these medications that we've just mentioned, and then talk specifically about spe uh, specific and special considerations in the Down syndrome population. And we'll have a little bit more of a pro-con uh, format. Um, so thank you so much for listening in to this first session, and we hope you tune in for the second one. Hello, and welcome back to our second episode in Petra's Points of Discussion podcast on the topic of should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? Welcome back, Dr. Rourke. Thank you so much, Jen. So welcome back to session two. In our first session, we highlighted um, what are the skin conditions in children with Down syndrome that might require immune modulators? What we're going to talk about now are what are the, some of the pros and cons of using immune modulators to treat skin disease in children with Down syndrome. And we'll try to have this be a dynamic conversation about side effects and specifically relate this to some medical conditions um, in children with Down syndrome. So I just wanted to welcome back our panel, um, Dr. Kishore Velodi, thanks for coming back. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me back. I learned so much in session one, I'm excited. Oh, you're very kind. Um, we'll welcome back Dr. Emily Gurney. Thank you so much, looking forward to part two. And Dr. Christy Holland. Thanks, Jillian. Glad to be back. So Dr. Gurney, I'm wondering if you can start us out with talking about some side effects for JAK inhibitors. Absolutely. So um, certainly our use of JAK inhibitors, I think, is expanding quickly. Um, so understanding potential side effects is really important to have a detailed, informed consent discussion with our families. Um, in some of the trials, the most common side effects seen were uh, upper respiratory tract infections, urinary tract infections, acneiform eruptions for some of the JAK inhibitors or folliculitis, uh, dyslipidemia, neutropenia, and fungal infections. So those were all the sort of relatively mild reactions that were seen. Um, unfortunately, there are several black box warnings on sort of all the JAK inhibitors used for inflammatory skin conditions 
at this point, um, mostly coming from trials of tofacitinib done in rheumatoid arthritis patients who were 50 years or older. Um, the first being an increased risk of infection, specifically zoster, um, but also pneumocystis pneumonia, tuberculosis. So there is a concern about increased risk of severe infection. There is a question of an increased risk of malignancy. So lymphoma and solid tumors, uh, specifically they bring up lung cancer and smokers. So maybe not something we're as familiar with discussing in our pediatric patients, but a consideration certainly. Major cardiovascular events are something that need to be discussed with families, um, including both MIs and strokes. Patients um, and families should be aware of that risk, as well as a risk of potentially increased risk of thrombosis. So both PE, DVT, and arterial clots. Um, overall, there is a question of increased risk mortality, particularly related to sudden cardiovascular death um, that was seen in the initial trials. The FDA mandated that the drug manufacturers go back and study this in more detail um, due to these sort of initial safety signals that were seen. Uh, New England Journal earlier this year published a pretty extensive study comparing JAK inhibitors to TNF-alpha inhibitors um, and looked at over 4,000 patients in high-dose tofacitinib, lower-dose tofacitinib, and compared it with TNF-alpha inhibitors. Uh, they did see that the pooled risk in the patients with taking tofacitinib was higher, both for major cardiovascular events and malignancy. So I think it's really important to highlight that that comparison for both people prescribing these medications and for patients and families, again, so we can have a really detailed informed consent discussion if we're going to talk about prescribing JAK inhibitors. Now, um, the overall increased risk for tofacitinib relative to JAK inhibitors was low, was about 1%. It's really not clear why or how that um, difference in risk for malignancy and um, severe cardiac events happens. So was it that TNF-alpha inhibitors decrease the risk? Um, again, this study was done in patients with rheumatoid arthritis with at least one cardiovascular risk factor at baseline. So how much does that apply to all of the patients that we see? How much that, does that apply to pediatric patients? How much does that apply to people who are not being treated for rheumatoid arthritis and being treated for alopecia areata, hydratinitis, other conditions? And really, how much does that apply to patients with Down syndrome? So I think we're probably going to talk a little bit more about that um, later in this podcast. And I'm interested to hear what the group is going to say. Yeah, I think um, before we transition over to that, I know um, Dr. Gurney, you did such a nice job talking about that comparative trial and talking about TNF-alpha inhibitors. Dr. Holland, I wonder if you can flesh out some more, um, some of the more major side effects for TNF-alpha inhibitors, just to kind of round out that portion of the conversation. Sure. Um, well, I think, you know, similar to uh, some of the data for the JAK inhibitors, uh, you know, in the trials where TNF-alpha inhibitors or the other biologics uh, have been looked at, you know, there have been a slight increase rate of some of the upper respiratory infections like nasopharyngitis and pharyngitis compared to placebo. Uh, injection site reactions are uh, something unique to, uh, that we don't see in the JAK inhibitors with those being oral. Um, fortunately, that uh, that doesn't seem to be quite as common uh, in uh, children. 
Um, the, the safety profile largely has been shown to be similar to that of adults. Uh, so we haven't seen anything to suggest in the studies in the pediatric population that they um, behave differently. With some of the newer biologics uh, with the anti-IL-17 agents, there's a couple of unique um, potential concerns. Um, one is with the uh, at least theoretical risk of an increase in infections with candida as IL-17 is actually a key part of your immune response against candida. And also uh, with the potential concern for flaring inflammatory bowel disease, uh, they actually did a trial, an exploratory trial of anti-IL-17 medications in patients with Crohn's disease and observed uh, a significant increase in activity in those patients. And we certainly are aware in the trials that there have been new cases of inflammatory bowel disease that uh, were unmasked by uh, the IL-17, the anti-IL-17 agents. I think one other thing that I would, uh, in thinking about this, that I would bring up uh, with any type of immunomodulation and I, and I know this was discussed a bit at our recent Society of Pediatric Dermatology meeting, but anytime you're sort of shifting um, immune mediators, you know, we, I think we have the potential for triggering something else um, or um, even having paradoxical flares of the skin disease that we're trying to treat. Uh, and, and I think, you know, there's, there may be some differences that we don't fully understand in one person with psoriasis versus another that um, that maybe with more time and maybe better genotype phenotype correlation we might be able to start to predict you know who um, is going to you know have sort of a aberrant response to the treatment so I think that's something that I don't think about as much with the JAK inhibitors and maybe it's just from lack of experience with those, but, uh, and maybe we'll learn more, but I think about them as being a little bit broader. So maybe harder to sort of swing the, um, the immunophenotype one way or the other. So. Well, I think that's a really excellent point and certainly something that was highlighted, you know, at our, at our recent meeting and something that I know in talking with you about complex cases, like you've seen that in your own patients, um, even with Down syndrome. So Dr. Velodi, I want to link you in on the conversation now because I want to know what's going through your brain when you're hearing all these side effects um, as, a, as a Down syndrome expert and knowing their um, medical conditions so well. So can you can you kind of contextualize some of these side effects that were just brought up um, by doctors Gurney and Holland and how that might relate to somebody with Down syndrome? Yes, of course. Yeah, these are these are areas that, of course, are going to be of concern also to parents as we talk about these types of medications with them as well. Uh, I think a couple of the areas we were just hitting on thinking about infection risks, right? We know that in children with Down syndrome, they have increased rates of infection, especially sinopulmonary infections. We suspect that it's due to their underlying anatomical differences. So the mid-face hypoplasia that we see in people with Down syndrome often will impair their ability to drain their sinuses, impair their ability to uh, drain their middle ear canal, which raises, the, it raises their chances of having middle ear infections. Uh, as well as sinusitis. And then in addition to that, we see a lot of pulmonary infections as well in people with Down syndrome. There's a lot of theories behind it. I don't know that anybody really knows why. Uh, certainly there may be some impaired mucociliary clearance 
but there also could be just underlying known immune deficiencies in people with Down syndrome that prevent them from fighting off infections that typically come to the sinopulmonary area. For example, strep pneumo and encapsulated bacteria uh, like strep pneumo are very difficult for children with Down syndrome to mount an effective immune response against, including even when you vaccinate them with Prevnar, which is of course part of the childhood vaccination series, when you check antibody levels uh, on the children to those specific Prevnar um, um, antigens, they don't make the same immune response that you would expect. So, so there's definitely immune-related, infection-related concerns that we would have for these types of uh, 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 medications to be given uh, to them. And then the other side of it, we were talking about increased malignancy risks. Um, This is one area that's so interesting in people with Down syndrome. We know that they have a higher incidence of leukemia. Leukemia is uh, happens in about 36 out of 1,000 children with Down syndrome under the age of 15. That's compared to 0.8 out of 1,000 in children who don't have Down syndrome. So it's a significantly increased risk. And nobody knows why leukemia is more common in people with Down syndrome. But then on the flip side, as we've been just sharing with these particular medications and concerns for solid organ tumors, that's an area that we don't see very often uh, an issue in people with Down syndrome. And again, nobody knows why. There must be gene products on the 21st chromosome that are oncoprotective against solid organ tumors. And and again, this is an area that's under pretty active research trying to figure out, well, what is that gene product that, you know, potentially we could uh, use to help the general population also when we're talking about struggling with some of these uh, solid organ tumors. And so it's a a mixed bag, I guess. It's, It's not an easy answer in this one, Dr. Rourke, for sure. Yeah, I think um, that is a really common question that we get, especially with TNF-alpha inhibitors, is this question of increased risk of lymphoma. And, you know, from what you just said, it's it's more of a leukemia risk than the Down syndrome population at a younger age. And it's a specific kind of leukemia. Is that right, Dr. Williams? It is, in fact. So we see a specific type of AML in people with Down syndrome, uh, and it's actually so specific, it actually gets its own name. It's myeloid leukemia of Down syndrome or MLDS. And surprisingly, again, they have a better treatment outcome in this type of AML than do other children who don't have Down syndrome who get AML. So again, lots Mm -hmm. of things that you could fill a book of things we don't know about Down syndrome more than you could probably write a book about what we do know. There's so much unknown. Uh, And now we're talking about all these wonderful medications and we have so much unknown there too, right? Which is why this podcast is so important. Can you touch upon um, any associated risk with inflammatory bowel disease, just as that's in the front of our brains as we think about IL-17? Yeah, you know, we don't see, at least in the literature and even in my own clinical practice, we don't see a lot of overlap between Down syndrome and uh, inflammatory bowel disease, which is pretty much the opposite of what I say when I think about Down syndrome and any other autoimmune type condition, as you guys have highlighted so beautifully today, all the autoimmune skin conditions, but you add on top of that, every other autoimmune issue that we can see in people with Down syndrome. And yet inflammatory bowel disease doesn't seem to be on that list. And so even trying to find things that would maybe find a connection, you find isolated case reports, but we don't really see a big link between the two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and what about cardiovascular risk um, and, and also blood clot risk? Do we have any information about that and how to have that conversation? 
We do in that my adult colleagues who take care of adults with Down syndrome say that their big three that they worry about in adults in general, they don't worry about in their adults with Down syndrome. So when we're thinking about cardiovascular, stroke, um, uh, high cholesterol, uh, atherosclerosis, all these things that we as adults uh, worry about, uh, we don't see in people with Down syndrome. So when we think about cardiovascular risk, we're really thinking about the, the younger child with Down syndrome with congenital heart defects or something like that. But we're not thinking about things like atherosclerosis. In fact, so much so that when we have our uh, national meetings talking about uh, Down syndrome and case, interesting cases that we've seen, an MI would be an interesting case to talk about uh, in, amongst us, in our, in our, amongst our colleagues that take care of people with Down syndrome, because we don't see MIs. And if they were having an MI, maybe there was some sort of rare anatomical thing, but it won't be a cholesterol plaque related thing. So we don't see very much of that. We don't also see a lot of things like DVTs, uh, deep venous thrombosis, going to pulmonary emboli or going to strokes or anything like that. And people with Down syndrome, again, very fascinating that these so these things that are so common in the general population we just don't see even in adults with down syndrome mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i guess just in in um in in general what is the expected life what is the life expectancy now for somebody with down syndrome yeah so if you were to look at life expectancy now we're looking into the late 50s early 60s but again this is um a group, a cohort of people with Down syndrome that really did not have medical care 60 years ago. And so who knows what now this population now is going to be doing uh, 20, 30 years, 40 years from now, how they're going to be doing now that they actually are receiving the medical care that they deserve. In fact, one of the things that you think about is if you look at the life expectancy in the 1940s and 50s for somebody with Down syndrome compared to today, and you took that same life expectancy increase and put it on our general population, we'd all be living into the 300s. So it's been such a remarkable increase in life expectancy, even in the last 50, 60 years that we don't know what the next 50, 60 years will bring. Gosh, that is so insightful to have that comparison. I mean, that really shows us just how, how medical care has made such a tremendous difference. And mm -hmm. I, I think in that light, um, you know, let's start talking about some of the pros for using these medicines and that have a huge effect um, on, on patients' quality of life and, and, and on their, on so many aspects of their life. So, um, so Dr. Holland, if I were to ask you to be on the pro side of using some of these immune modulators, what would you say about that? What do you think the positives are? Well, I, I'm more than happy to represent the pro side since I do <laughs> use these medications in these patients. So, uh, so thank you for asking me to represent this side of the, uh, of the controversy. Um, so, you know, I think the most important thing is that um, these medications work really well and they can work really fast. Um, and we have data for many of these, as I said, uh, in children um, compared to, you know, actual controlled trials in children compared to some of the conventional therapies that we had used in the past for and I'll pick psoriasis, for example, because that's the one that I would say I have most experience with. Um, and so we can actually say that this is, you know, been designed, the dose is right, you know, we, you know, and, and so I think that that's a huge thing. But it's also, you know, like I said, they, they do work really well. 
um, patients um, get relief uh, of their problem, you know, with psoriasis, um, you know, they can be very uncomfortable and it can affect their ability to, to move um, because their skin is uncomfortable. Same with hydratinitis, you know, hard for these kids to, um, you know, dance and to their music and, um, and do the activities, you know, the, the, some of my patients are in special Olympics and, you know, if their skin is, um, not healthy, it's really hard for them to participate in the things that they enjoy. Um, I, I think that the more, um, specific to the biologics than Jack inhibitors, uh, that I think the advantage of not having to get lab monitoring, uh, is, is a, a bonus over some of the conventional uh, psoriasis treatments. Although, you know, on the flip side, um, they do have to receive the medication through an injection. Um, so sort of weighing the pros and cons of that. Uh, I think there's uh, less risk uh, for patients who have other comorbidities uh, with some of the other psoriasis specifically medications that may affect the kidney or the liver. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, some of these patients and, and I'd be interested in, uh, in hearing what Dr. Velody uh, says in terms of, you know, uh, risk for, you know, things like fatty liver, since, uh, some of these patients can have obesity. Um, but certainly if they did, um, you wouldn't want to use, uh, a medication that might affect the liver. Um, and I've had patients with renal impairment and down syndrome. So I think, you know, making sure you're looking at the whole picture, uh, I would say, in addition, the um, long-term efficacy has been shown. You know, the, these don't. Many of these medications have been studied out a year or two years, and uh, and continue to work for them. And because they don't have to worry about some of the end organ issues with some of the conventional therapy, we don't feel as compelled to. Um, reach a point where we give them a drug holiday and cycle them off and wait for their skin to flare again and then put them back on. We can leave them on these things. Uh, the JAK inhibitors, you know, they're, they're new. Um, so we, I think we need to uh, get more experience with them in terms of their safety specific to the to, um, pediatrics. Uh, I think what's attractive to JAK inhibitors is that I'm starting to think there's nothing they don't fix. Um, and so if a patient has alopecia areata and they have psoriasis, you could really kill two birds with one stone instead of sort of just zeroing in on the mechanism for that condition. Uh, and I think perhaps there'll be less risk for some of the paradoxical disease flares, as I mentioned before with those. Oh, I, I think that's great. I think um, Dr. Holland too, will touch upon this a bit later, but thinking about the mechanisms of disease for Down syndrome, you know, thinking about JAK inhibitors, you know, might, might make sense too, um, moving forward. So not to put you in the hot seat for the cons, Dr. Gurney, but can you, can you tell us what's going through my, your mind when you hear all the positives? I'm ready to take on the cons. I had a semester <laughs> of debate in high school, so I am ready to take on all what Dr. Holland just, just told us. Um, I think one important point that Dr. Rourke brought up earlier when we talk about efficacy is we really don't know what the efficacy is specific to our persons with Down syndrome that we're treating. We know the efficacy in persons without Down syndrome pretty well for a lot of these medications, particularly for psoriasis, um, but we just don't know. I, I don't think there's enough data to really know how effective and to give families and, and patients 
good advice about what they can expect about efficacy. Um, and that goes for safety to some extent too. So I think um, that's a really important point when we're discussing this uh, with families. The other point that I would bring up, not specific to, to individuals with Down syndrome, but in general, is that we're treating chronic conditions here. It's really difficult to know what is the endpoint, how long are we going to be using these relatively high-risk medications, um, and then does the efficacy wane over time if you know we're treating children for the most part of people listening to this podcast? So how long are we signing up this child to be taking these high-risk medications, require lab monitoring, close monitoring for infection? You know, of course, we have to balance all of those things with the incredible impact on quality of life that these conditions can have. Certainly, you know, like Dr. Holland mentioned, the JAK inhibitors are very new. So it may be the ones that we have right now may not be the best JAK inhibitors to treat the conditions we want to treat. There's a lot on the horizon. So potentially in the next few years, we may have safer, more targeted treatments um, to offer our patients. And then as was mentioned before, you know, there's pain with injection, there's pain with having frequent blood draws if we're treating um, children or anyone that has, you know, phobia of needles, that's a major consideration. All right. So Dr. Velody, you get to make the choice right now, whether you want to be pro or con, or I guess you could be neutral. Oh my <laughs> so goodness. So what do you think when you hear these both sides? I'm just getting used to meeting everyone and trying to be friends with everyone. And next thing I know, I have to pick a side. I don't know, actually, I have to be honest. This is a, it's a very challenging uh, discussion to have because a, as we've highlighted, there's certainly suspicion that these, these medications are going to be highly effective and perhaps even um, effective towards multiple autoimmune conditions at one time, which as we all know, as one autoimmune, autoimmune condition becomes two, three, and four are often not far behind. And so and the idea that some of these uh, medications could impact multiple areas of autoimmunity are, is certainly uh, a compelling uh, thing. At the same time, and as we all I think on this podcast, our, our parents of children as well, you always wonder if these haven't been studied, uh, at least not long term, and has certainly not been studied in people with Down syndrome, who we know, they don't have always the same side effect panel as everybody else, perhaps worse, we don't know, um, in these situations. Are we setting kids up for long term later on down the road thinking, oh, nuts, this was we thought a great idea, but here we are 15 years later and it wasn't as great as we thought. So, oh, I wish I could fall on one side or the other. I'm like, on the one hand, I, as I started, I was so pro. And then as I talked myself out of it, I'm back to con. So I think I'm neutral. I'm going to stay neutral on this one. <laughs> you're, you're waving the Switzerland flag. I am. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that's excellent. Um, and, and before I close out this, this, portion um, of the podcast, I know um, that Dr. Holland brought up some good points about fatty liver disease and renal function. I don't know, Dr. Velody, if you can touch on that, because I think our yeah. listeners will probably want to know what your answer is on those. Definitely. No, I appreciate that. Uh, the, the, the incidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is actually higher in people with Down syndrome. And it's something that should be considered, particularly in those uh, in the population who end up getting overweight and obese. Uh, there have been studies that have shown quite clearly that we don't consider it enough. Um, and it is there when we look for it. So as, as children start to get into that overweight, obese stage, we do often uh, recommend checking 
tracking liver function testing. That's not part of, of course, the Down syndrome specific guidelines. That's just based on their body habitus. So it would be something that we would certainly consider. And in terms of renal dysfunction, historically, classically, people used to say that renal dysfunction is not associated with Down syndrome, although there is some uh, groundswell of thinking that perhaps maybe hydration status, and also just kind of dysfunctional voiding in general might be causing more renal dysfunction than we've actually previously considered. So stay tuned um, to that. There's certainly no clear data on that, but it's certainly something that we're all looking into. Oh, that, that's excellent. I think we'll close out this portion of, um, of this podcast so that we can come back together in session three and, and really have that be a roundtable discussion on how we process the, the first two sessions and actually talk about it with our patients and families. So we look forward to listening in. Hello, and welcome back to our third installment of Pedra's Points of Discussion podcast on the debate topic of should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? Thanks, Jen. So um, I'm excited to start session three, our last session where we're going to have a more roundtable discussion on how to approach um, discussing immune modulator treatments with patients and families. So I just want to invite back our panelists, Dr. Kishore Velodi. Thank you so much. Excited for session three. Dr. Emily Gurney. Thanks, Dr. Rourke. And Dr. Christy Holland. Hello again. Excellent. So Dr. Velodi, let's jump right in and talk about discussing quality of life in people with Down syndrome, because I think that's really going to be the foundation of our roundtable discussion with patients and families. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's... uh... It's an area that's been in tremendous flux over the past many years. The, the idea that somebody with Down syndrome, especially a child with Down syndrome, should be expected to have a different expectation for quality of life, that those, that's a bygone era. Thank goodness. Uh, people with Down syndrome should have the same expectations for quality of life as everyone else. And I think the parents should also have these expectations as well. And we set that bar for the families right from the beginning, that uh, if your child has a medical condition that needs to be treated, then we should treat it. Uh, It's a sad commentary on the state of medicine that it really wasn't until the early 1980s where people with Down syndrome were even offered surgical care for cardiac issues or gastrointestinal issues because the thought process was that, you know, they weren't going to have a great quality of life after those surgeries. And of course, that's been proven wrong. And I think over and over again, people with Down syndrome are are showing that uh, expectations for quality of life should be high. We know now that People with Down syndrome, when they're given access to the medical care and the education that they deserve, they're breaking limits that we thought they once had. They're going to college. They're living independently. They're getting married. There's so many things that people with Down syndrome are doing now that I think that any discussion about quality of life should be like it would be with a child who does not have Down syndrome. And I think we, as pediatric dermatologists specifically, um, are, are, we're in tune with this. A lot of us talk a lot about this. And I think patients and parents with Down syndrome br- bring this up with me. You know, no one's ever talked to me about my acne or psoriasis. I, I don't want my feet to look like this when I'm going to the pool. Can you please help me with this? Um, are there any specific questions that you have found through the years to, to, to assess quality of life um, in children with Down syndrome, things that you might ask? Um, just trying to give some good history pearls for people when they're trying to take this into consideration. I mean, I think I would ask a family 
how is this condition affecting your child's ability to function, to go out into public? Do they, are they seeming like they're uh, perhaps uh, self-conscious or uh, having symptoms that are keeping them from being able to go to the birthday party down the street if they're, if they're little and they're, they don't want to go because they have a psoriatic patch and they're itching or, 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 or things like that, that it's not just, it should not be expected that they should have to uh, just deal with those problems. In fact, they should be able to have those problems managed like any other child would. And so I think I would, I would ask the questions uh, to a family of a child with Down syndrome the same way I would ask it to any other child. So as we uh, know, teenagers with acne, oftentimes that's a big issue. And it's an issue that can often be ignored, unfortunately, by primary care providers. You take that same child, same age, and with Down syndrome, and they may be even further ignored because the uh, primary care provider might say, well, you know, they have Down syndrome. Do they really care? And in fact, they do. And I think it's important for us to ask those questions um, in, in the same way that we would ask it of any other uh, patient that we take care of. Oh, that is that is so insightful. Um, and I, I know, Dr. Holland, that you've um, taken care of many patients with Down syndrome through the years, and you've had these conversations with families. And so I'd love to hear your approach um, to having a conversation when the thought is that care needs to be escalated to start talking about some, some of these immune modulator treatments. Um, how, do you, how do you approach that? Well, I think uh, it's a, it sort of reiterates a little bit of what Dr. Velody was saying, because you know when you offer topical therapy for something, the stakes are low. And so you're like, hey, let's try this. And if it works, great. You know, It's pretty low risk. Um, there's not a lot to worry about. And if you're considering moving beyond topicals to the next level, I think you really have to know, do the, do the risks of that potential treatment, you know, match the size of the problem. And so you have to understand what the size of the problem is and whether or not, you know, this is having a significant enough of an impact on the person's quality of life. You know, for me, it's easy to think about, you know, something painful and uncomfortable as hydradenitis that, you know, I think all of us have an easy time to imagine how that would affect. But, I, you know, when we think about other conditions like alopecia areata, um, where you might have one person where they could care less and another person where they won't leave the house. And so I think, you know, you really have to understand sort of what, to what extent um, you need to go to get to improve that person's quality of life. So I think that's, that's really where I go, you know, with sort of trying to decide, is it worth it kind of thing is, is the way I look at it. Um, and then, you know, as I said, psoriasis is where I have the most experience uh, with these patients, but after topicals, you know, phototherapy is often thought about, you know, that's logistically challenging for a lot of families. Um, but, you know, some of these kids wouldn't have an easy time being able to cooperate with wearing the eye protection in there or feeling comfortable in an enclosed space. Um, I definitely have had patients with Down syndrome who've received phototherapy, but others where, you know, there's, there's no way that we would expect them to be able to comply with that. Um, and I think as we have gotten medications, more and more options, I have less and less patients that are interested in coming in a couple times a week for phototherapy. Um, but they're, you know, that's a pretty safe uh, treatment. And then when we have the, when we move on to discussion for conventional therapy versus something like an immunomodulator, uh, it's, you know, both of them, I kind of explained to parents that both of them are going 
both those categories are going to be immunosuppressive with the potential risk of infection, because I think that's probably the, the top concern um, and the most common you know, side effect uh, that we, that real side effect that we might see. Um, and I spend some time talking about sort of global immunosuppression from some of the conventional therapies and how these newer ones are a little bit more targeted. And so in theory may allow more of your, the rest of the immune system to be functioning. Um, and we may not quite see as many uh, infections it, with the targeted therapies as we might with some of the conventional uh, Medicaid, conventional immunosuppressions. And then we talk about sort of you know, how they're administered, are they oral, are they injection and, um, and sort of what the frequency of injections would be, what the need for lab monitoring would be. Um, you know, it really is a many, in many cases, it's a trade-off of having an injection for your medication, but maybe less blood draws or a medicine by mouth um, with you know, more blood draws. Uh, and so sometimes that might, you know, sit uh, with one family uh, more than another if they have a preference. Um, I think one of the biggest questions that comes up when we talk about starting a therapy, um, and uh, Dr. Gurney men mentioned this was, you know, parents always ask, well, are they going to be on this for the rest of their life, you know, especially in the pediatric population. And, you know, I think having that discussion of if someone would prefer to be on a medication that they can cycle, potentially cycle on and off with, um, you know, that that's more realistic to do, I think, with a conventional medication where we don't see as much resistance develop after a drug holiday. Um, and, you know, we certainly have experience doing that with some of the older medications like methotrexate, you know, use it, get them better, take a break, um, and then go back on it. And some people like the idea of that. Uh, I think we, we don't know what 20 years, well, I, we don't have good data. I know there are people who've been on some of these biologics for that long, but you know what 20 years of being on one of these medications means and you know, how long do they truly um, remain effective? Um, but I, you know, I, I always warn people that if they go on a biologic and they choose to go off of it, um, you know, there's definitely risk that the next time they go back on it, it might not work as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, uh, but you know, at, at that point, it's usually like, well, let's first get it under control, make sure it's better. And then we can have that discussion. So, um, did I answer all of your questions? No, Jill? I think that's excellent. You had such yeah. great talking points there. I think I want to flush a couple of them out, um, and just loop in Dr. Gurney and Dr. Velodi, um, specifically on how to talk about this infection risk in, with people with Down syndrome and their, and their families, um, since Dr. Velody did such a nice job highlighting that in session two. So, um, you know, just, just a kind of nuts and bolts, like what are we going to talk about? Um, so Dr. Gurney and, and Dr. Velody, I don't know if you want to comment on that. Sure, I'm happy to, to start. So uh, as we talked about in session two, there are definitely an increased risk of infection in people with Down syndrome. We had talked about how they get a lot more sinus, ear, and uh, pulmonary infections. And a lot of that is anatomic, but a lot of that is also immune related. And we know that encapsulated organisms in particular are very challenging for the immune system in people with Down syndrome. We also know that they have some immunoglobulin deficits also. Uh, IgG2 and IgG4 tend to be lower in people with Down syndrome. We don't think that that causes any significant immune compromise, but we don't know for sure in terms of that. And so 
we know with this risk of, in, of difficulty fighting off encapsulated organisms that there's actually been some thought about beyond just the Prevnar vaccine series in infancy, we should actually be also expanding that and including a pneumovax uh, or PPS23 booster uh, for people with Down syndrome, maybe universally at some point. And so these are real serious uh, decisions that a family would have to make. And so certainly if you have a child as a pediatric dermatologist who's already having recurrent sinopulmonary infections as part of their uh, medical history, it may be an idea to maybe think about talking with an infectious disease or immunology specialist before um, so they could make an informed decision, the family could make an informed decision on which way they would want to go. I'm sure uh, they they can be helpful in in those areas. So it sounds like maybe a really good history question would be how many sinopulmonary infections have you had within the last three months, six months to a year? And then, you know, potentially even talking with your infectious disease colleagues about maybe drawing titers on on, and to see how effective some of these vaccines have been before starting on a biologic. That would make Um, perfect sense. And if they needed a booster, uh, you know, PPS 23 or something like that, they could get that before they started the, the inhibitor. Dr. Gurney, um, do you have any um, other thoughts on infection and and how to uh, manage that conversation? Well, infection is is a common complication that we see in in many of our patients taking immunosuppressive medications, usually relatively benign upper respiratory tract infection. Um, But I think having a partnership with the primary care physician taking care of our patients is really, really important. And particularly in this situation, when we are worried about potentially that increased risk of particularly the upper respiratory tract infection, since often, particularly in pediatrics, um, you know, pediatricians have excellent um, training and experience really treating that beyond what we may have as a subspecialist in dermatology. So I think having that partnership would be even more important treating a person with Down syndrome for these conditions. Um, I think understanding other risk factors the patient may have, or do they travel frequently to an area endemic with tuberculosis or something along those lines would be important to know. So we may want to take just a little more time than we would have otherwise getting a little more in-depth history. Um, we probably are doing that with most of our patients who are starting on immunosuppression, but perhaps in this situation, another, another reason to pause and ask even more questions than we may have otherwise. Um, and then certainly I think um, standard pre-screening treatment labs and considering maybe um, increasing the frequency of lab monitoring in conjunction with a pediatrician or, you know, as Dr. Velody brought up, if, if we have the help of infectious disease or allergy immunology physicians, to kind of help guide whether we may need to monitor a little bit more frequently if it is someone that's had uh, more issues in the past with infection. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. I wonder if we can flesh out now a a, a bit the risk of malignancy. Um, And so Dr. Velody, you did a really nice job highlighting that in session two. I wonder if you can just kind of jumpstart that conversation for our listeners again. Yes. Yeah, so as we were speaking about before, the, the risk of malignancy, the, the main risk really is 
leukemia, and particularly in the under five-year-old, perhaps under 10-year-old, that's when we see most of the leukemia. It's, it's, it's opposite of what we, did, we see in children who don't have Down syndrome in terms of the type of leukemia that they might get. Uh, the younger child may get AML, which is usually an older child who doesn't have Down syndrome. And uh, ALL is, uh, is oftentimes the older child with Down syndrome, but the younger child who doesn't have Down syndrome. So they're very, very uh, interestingly almost flipped. Um, in terms of frequency, but in terms of malignancies that we've been talking about with these medicines and uh, thinking more along the lines of solid organ tumors, as we've mentioned, doesn't seem to be a major risk in people with Down syndrome, even into adulthood. It doesn't mean that it's zero, but it's certainly nowhere near as high as the general population. Mm -hmm. And I think too, you know, lymphoma being a big question of ours, it doesn't seem like that. That's an increased risk either. It's more of a specific kind of leukemia. You're Um, correct. Yeah. Lymphoma, in fact, so much so that we used to screen children for celiac disease, the gluten sensitivity, uh, because we were worried that because celiac disease is so much more common in Down syndrome, that uh, untreated celiac disease would lead to small intestinal lymphoma if it went uh, undiagnosed and untreated. And what we've discovered is that in people with Down syndrome, even then, even if they're asymptomatic and untreated uh, for celiac, they were not having increased risk of small intestinal lymphoma. So they removed that. uh, The American Academy of Pediatrics removed that recommendation for asymptomatic screening for celiac, specifically because there's such a lower risk of lymphoma in general. Mm. Oh, that is so interesting to know that backstory. Dr. Holland, do you have any other talking points about how you approach this malignancy um, question with patients and families? Yeah, I think it is a challenging uh, conversation and and I do bring it up, but it is, um, you know, when you start talking about the C word, um, I think, you know, it's uh, all of a sudden people are like, maybe my skin problem isn't so bad. <laughs> um, but what, you know, what I try to highlight is that, you know, any immunosuppression, and this is even beyond sort of the Down syndrome population, but just pediatrics in general, that, you know, we know that immunosuppression can put people at risk for lymphoma. And, you know, the the reports of lymphoma, you know, do seem to be higher in certain patient populations, which may not be, you know, the pediatric population. And it may be more common when there's multiple immunosuppressive agents being used. Um, and I'm thinking more specifically about like the rheumatoid arthritis um, patients. So I, you know, I, I try to reassure them that, you know, we're not seeing, you know, increased signals uh, in the data from pediatric uh, patients treated with these medications. But, you know, I can't tell them that it's a zero risk, um, but it is, again, sort of going back to, you know, how, again, how big is the, the, the skin condition that we're treating um, versus this um, sort of what I would say theoretical risk. So... Yeah, I loved your pearl. Does the size of the medicine match the size of the problem? You know, I think that's a really good takeaway. Um, and it, as is so often the case when we have these in-depth conversations about a topic, we end up, I think, asking more questions and we end up answering them. But I wanted um, all of you guys to highlight some of the work that's being done um, right now in the Down syndrome community to try to answer some of these questions. Um, so Dr. Velody, can you talk about the NIH Include um, project? Because I think that's really important work to highlight. Yes, we've definitely seen a dramatic increase in funding for Down syndrome specific research. As we've 
kind of alluded to during uh, these sessions, we've seen how uh, there isn't very much clear, good, kind of large sample size data in, in anything, not just dermatologic issues in Down syndrome, just Down syndrome in general. And one thing that uh, has been a challenge is, is, is trying to find funding for those projects. And so when the National Institutes of Health and the Include Project came along in 2018, it was, it was so longed for in our groups. We all wanted this. Uh, to, it's a research initiative to, to improve the health and the quality of life in people with Down syndrome. Their, their funding is towards basic science research, but the, go the goal is to have a large study population of individuals with Down syndrome so that trials can be conducted and so that we don't have to say, well, there was three case reports, we can say that there were 3000 people enrolled or something, you know, where we can get very effective, very useful data. And as we've talked about, even on this podcast, boy, wouldn't that be helpful for a lot of these uh, conditions you guys are treating all the time as well. And I know, Dr. Gurney, where you are, you're kind of at the epicenter of a lot of that research yes. at the University of Colorado. Can you talk about some of the work that's being done there um, that's being funded by the NIH Include Project and obviously other external funding too, but that'd be great if you could touch upon that. So I'm a very small part of a very large and interesting and exciting um, research team that is looking at the use of JAK inhibitors in persons with Down syndrome. So we have right now a phase two trial enrolling children and adults age 12 to 50 with Down syndrome. Um, who have moderate to severe skin conditions, including alopecia areata, atopic dermatitis, hydradenitis, vitiligo, or psoriasis. Um, we have completed a, our interim analysis, which was really promising, and we'll be enrolling uh, new patients soon. We do have travel support for families who are interested in participating to come to Colorado, fun place to visit, as a side note, um, who what, may want to be interested in, in participating in the study. And the interesting thing is the study really looks at diverse endpoints. So really safety is, is a key thing that, you know, we've talked about a lot, of course, during this, this podcast, obviously we're looking at efficacy as well, but safety has really been central uh, to this study. So um, that's an important um, kind of consideration. I think we all have talking about these medications um, and then also looking at what is the role of JAK inhibitors in decreasing systemic inflammation in persons with Down syndrome and what other effects might that have for them? Might that improve their cognition um, and other sort of things that we may not think about as dermatologists necessarily prescribing these medications? So um, it's been really exciting to be, again, a very small part of a very large research collaboration here. If you have patients who you think might be interested in our study or at least learning more, um, they or you can contact us um, at the email address for our study coordinators, which we will have in the podcast notes for you. No, that's, that's really, that's really exciting that you're able to be a part of that work. I wonder, Dr. Velody, can you touch a little bit about the Lumind Institute? Because I feel like that's a nice kind of, um, that's a nice interface between the NIH and some of the other initiatives going on. Yeah, Lumind is a group. It's the it's the largest uh, non-governmental source of funding for Down syndrome related research. Uh, they really look into kind of cognitive research in Down syndrome, learning, memory, and speech. Uh, and they're 
their goal also is to to empower their the families through education connections support so it's a very well-rounded group and looking at uh, uh, funding down syndrome related research again such an important uh, component of, of of what we need to do to to move medical care forward and then um Dr. Holland, we're maybe going to be biased on this answer because you and I are both part of the, the Pedrin Down syndrome subgroup, but can you can you just highlight some of the work that, that we've been doing and, and that I guess maybe that we exist? <laughs> sure. Well, I'm definitely going to give a shout out for my colleague, Dr. Jillian Work, because she has been amazing at sort of energizing our group uh, to move forward with start to try to start to answer some questions and get more data about um, pediatric patients um, with uh, skin conditions who have uh, Down syndrome. Um, we, uh, we currently are getting um, positioned to um, first try to establish, you know, what kinds of skin conditions these patients have um, by doing a retrospective review at uh, looking at diagnosis codes so that we can kind of see like what what are our patients coming in with? Because there, there's a handful of reports in the literature, but um, you know, sort of single institution. And, and so we think there could be value in uh, networking with our colleagues and being able to define uh, the disease burden and, and types of diseases. Um, we also uh, are working uh, on a quality of life study. Um, Dr. Work has worked on a, an instrument um, with uh, one of our members uh, and is going to be deploying that. Uh, and um, we're also, uh, we have an upcoming meeting, so um, we're excited uh, about that. But I, we're, we're really interested in um, trying to work together to identify our cases uh, retrospectively uh, to of patients who've been treated with some of these immunomodulatory agents um, with the hope that by doing it in a retrospective manner, we may have some more long-term data um, to be able to say what kinds of um, events or issues were noted, if any, um, which, you know, prospective is always the better way to go, but, um, you know, that, that would be a, a pretty long uh, study to do, but I think we can get some initial information and certainly add to the literature because right now, you know, in terms of what you can find in the literature about Down syndrome with some of these immunomodulatory medications, I'd say there's less than, uh, 10 easily um, individual cases through case reports and case, case series of these medications being used for things like psoriasis, hydradenitis, um, and a couple of inflammatory bowel disease, but um, so not a lot out there. I know, Dr. Holland, I remember you saying as we started to work together, oh, wow, I didn't realize that all my patients should be case reports, <laughs> you know, like we need to start talking about this more. Um, so I, I wanted to end on talking about shared medical decision making. And maybe Dr. Velody, I'll, I'll, I'll start with you because I think a lot of our conversation in session three has been centered around our conversations with um, parents. And uh, we have a really important, active, engaged, empowered person in the room who's there too. And that's, that's the patient. And so I want to know um, from you, some pearls for our listeners on how to engage everybody in making this decision. Yeah, I think uh, as we all learn in working with uh, pediatric patients that engaging the patient is probably the most important thing we can do. If you want to have a good 
heart exam, lung exam, belly exam later on, or a skin exam, or any of those things, you need to have engaged that patient throughout the history taking portion, letting them know that uh, you are someone that they can trust as you're doing your exam. And also that they can trust that you're going to include their viewpoint in the next steps. And of course, that's going to change as they get older. You know, a one-year-old who says, I don't want to take my antibiotic is is obviously not going to be listened to. But a 15-year-old who says, I don't necessarily want to come in for injections, you know, every week, every month, every three months, that, that, that needs to be taken into account, not just what the parent wants or we as the physicians want, but what does the child want as well? So I think that's probably the most important thing is engaging as developmentally appropriate, but making sure that you understand that even a child who you may not think understands what you're asking very often receptively children with down syndrome are on par with their uh, age age peers and so it's they probably are understanding what you're saying even if expressively they may not be able to say it quite as uh, efficiently all the time and receptively they're understanding what you're asking so i think it's a good thing to to get into the habit of I think one um, pearl that you've taught me through the years, Dr. Velody, is to ask about hearing and like be very kind of upfront about that because a lot of our patients with Down syndrome have hearing loss. And, um, you know, sometimes parts of the conversation are missed because of that, because we're not facing a certain way or because they can't hear as well out of their left ear as their right ear. Um, so I, I think that that, um, so thanks for, for teaching me about that. <laughs> yeah. As the husband to- of an audiologist, I can't believe I didn't even consider that in the answering of the question, but you're right. Um, it's okay. But- I gave you a softball, um, <laughs> as, as the husband. So, um, yeah. So um, Dr. Holland and Dr. Gurney, do you have any other pearls for us on um, shared medical decision-making and, and approaching that conversation? I think you've already had so many wonderful, wonderful things to say. So just. I don't have a whole lot else to add to that kind of excellent summary we've just heard. Um, other than, you know, I think we all need to remember everyone is an individual and that includes, uh, you know, people we take care of with Down syndrome. What works for one one person may not work for the next person that walks into your door. So, I think setting those expectations and asking questions um, with an open mind at the beginning of every new patient encounter is important. Yeah, that's really well said. And I, I guess the only other thing that I would add, um, because most kids, uh, when you talk, especially if we're talking about an injectable medication, you know, most kids, you know, are worried about it hurting, um, and being uncomfortable and, you know, giving them some suggestions and some ideas of how to reduce uh, the discomfort. Um, for some of these medications, we can offer in-office administration, which gives us even more, uh, options to help because we can have child life come, Uh, We can use the, I'll call it the needleless administration of lidocaine (laughs) to avoid giving the brand name. I know this isn't CME, but I feel like I I can't say that, but, um, but that really helps. And then topical lidocaine um, and those kinds of things. And we have, you know, a vibrating device that can be put at the place of the injection that can also help from a distraction uh, technique. And, you know, some of those things can be done at home, but trying to make it as easy and as comfortable for the kids to um, make them less, have more buy-in from them and less fear of it. So. No, that's excellent. I think our, our child life colleagues are, are, I oftentimes call them the, the fairy godparents of our clinic because they really just make all the difference and are a huge part of the shared medical decision-making 
conversation. Um, so I just wanted to thank um, our listeners, thank our panelists, um, Dr. Krishore Velodi, Dr. Emily Gurney, and Dr. Christy Holland. Um, thank you so much to Pedra for allowing us to have this conversation. And uh, I'm looking forward to listening to, to more Pedra Pearl podcasts in the future. Um, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. This concludes our three episode series on our points of discussion debate topic. Should immune modulators be prescribed for skin diseases in children with Down syndrome? I would very much like to thank Dr. Jillian Rourke for a fantastic job moderating and a huge thank you to our amazing panelists, Dr. Kishore Velodi, Dr. Emily Gurney, and Dr. Christy Holland. Thank you so much for participating. I would also like to especially thank our program sponsors, AbbVie Inc., Eli Lilly and Company, Sanofi Genzyme, and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this independent medical education program. Pedra is solely responsible for all program content and the selection of all presenters, authors, moderators, and faculty. You can find more Points of Discussion podcasts in iTunes, Spotify, and in uh, Google Podcasts. Thanks so much for listening.